Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. In a recent interview, we spoke with a noted psychologist who said, your primary task and goal in childhood is to survive it intact. Obviously, everyone listening in today has managed to do that with varying degrees of difficulty, but very few of us can tell those stories with fairness, generosity, and hope. My guest today led a harrowing childhood, but over time, she learned to turn from her own struggles to those of others and has traveled to 60 different countries writing stories of human rights, gender-based violence, natural disasters, displacement, and war. Rachel Louise Snyder is the author of three books, including the award-winning No Visible Bruises, a groundbreaking book about domestic violence. She's written for prestigious magazines nationwide, and today we're talking about her memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned. Rachel Louise Snyder, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that incredibly generous introduction. (laughs) So you wrote that you once read how trauma freezes a person in time so that a part of the person remains tethered to the person they were at the time of the trauma. Talk about the circumstances of your own trauma and how it trapped you. You know, in some ways, uh, that initial trauma that you're referring to is a very American story. My my mother died when I was a child. I was uh, just it was I was eight, about to turn nine. She had breast cancer, although I would not know that for a number of years. I actually didn't know how she died, and <laughs> you'd think that I would have asked, but no, I I never did. And somehow I I found out uh, probably when I was eleven or twelve. Um, but she had been sick my whole life. And so her death was was shocking in that my brother and I both only ever thought she would just be sick. Like it never occurred to either of us that she could die. And so her death really was um, uh, this moment of absolute rupture for both of us. You refer to the change in your life, the move after your mother's death from Pittsburgh to Chicago, your new home, your new school, as a whiplash, an emotional earthquake. Tell us what was different. Yeah, so many things. Uh, My mother was Jewish. She was from Boston. So, uh, you know, many of your listeners, I'm sure, have spent time in the North Shore. (laughs) And that's where she grew up in Swanscott. And um, my father was Christian, although, you know, not overly so, just sort of... uh, uh, I would say Methodist-like. And when she died, he, I think, was really searching for a place to put his grief. And the place that he put it was in this very devout evangelical world uh, church and school that was run by my aunt and uncle in, um, in Illinois. And so it wasn't just the loss of our mother. It was the loss of uh, Judaism and all the rituals that come with that. It was the loss of our neighborhood, our, our support system, all of our friends, our school. And he married uh, someone who I met two months before he married her. And so suddenly, you know, it's not just the loss of our mom, it's 
a whole new family. She had two kids. It's a whole new state. It's a whole new school. It's a whole new culture. It's a whole new way of living. And in some ways, um, although my mother's death was, was the original rupture, that um, that series of choices that he made was the thing that really, I think, um, put me over the edge, <laughs> as it were. Um, I I didn't want any of it from the, the first moment I learned we were moving. Um, and I rebelled in every way I could. So it was a really strict evangelical upbringing from the school to the way you lived at home to to the to to rigid bible study talk a little bit about what that was like compared to life in the pittsburgh suburbs which you know as you say in the book your 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 parents sort of viewed religion as as a, as a great social thing for the family you you mm-hmm. you had holidays with both religions and not too seriously either. So what was it like when you moved to Illinois? Yeah, listen, we were we were interested in anything in Pittsburgh. We were interested in anything that had gifts or food associated. <laughs> we were all in. Right. <laughs> and that included, of course, because we were it was Pittsburgh in the 70s. So that included uh, the Steelers games, um, which which is its own sort of religion. And then maybe that'll be a book down the line. But um, in in Illinois, we were not allowed to watch television. We were not allowed to listen. Well, we we were not allowed to listen to the music that we had listened to in Pittsburgh, which was essentially rock and roll. We could still, we could listen to country for reasons that are so strange. Like, I don't understand why country, I guess, because my stepmother liked country music. Um, all the television shows that we had watched, we were no longer allowed to watch. We were um, not really supposed to have activities outside of the church. I mean, we did have some neighborhood friends, but the main fulcrum of our lives became this very tiny evangelical church. And in my in my new school, um, there were 48 kids, K through 12. So there were five in my fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth grade classes um there were three in my stepsister's high school graduating class and the thing that was i mean among the many things that were terrible about that was that in the year and a half or two years after my mom died my brother and i just had this incredible freedom you know in third and fourth grade my dad's at work all day and we're just riding our bikes around the neighborhood we're playing kickball in the cul-de-sac we're suddenly eating you know, whatever we want to eat, whenever we want to eat it. I'm not forced into dresses and little Mary Janes anymore, you know, which my mother always wanted me to wear, my real mother. And so her death came with this really confusing um, uh, sense of freedom. And then that short-lived freedom was quickly taken away from us when we moved to Illinois. And you know, the other thing was that our family doubled in size. And so suddenly our sort of very comfortable middle class income, you know, plummeted. And my dad and stepmother are using food stamps and we're drinking powdered milk. And, you know, it just was um, I'm a parent now. So it's a, <laughs> I look at that and I think, wow, that was terrible decision making. <laughs> I I have to say, I would have liked to have known your 
Grandma Irma back in Swampscott. She drank martinis. She liked yes. good food. You even mentioned she was eating hummus in the 1970s. She, oh, not just eating it. She was making it homemade. Homemade. She was, She was. well, you couldn't buy it in the 1970s. She right. was, there were books all over her house. She loved to dance, all of which were denied you back home in Chicago. So on a summer visit once, you told her, because you were really concerned, that she was going to go to hell if she didn't accept Jesus. What was the result of your right. advice? Right. <laughs> she fell to her knees in prayer. No, of course not. She was a she was a staunch New England feminist. Her mother, my great grandmother, owned Boston's first interior design shop on Newbury Street. You can you can fact check that one. It was in the Boston Herald. Um, and uh, so I came from this long line of staunch Jewish feminists. And um, my grandmother had been a rockette. You know, she had been dancing in New York when she was 16. She went off and eloped with my grandfather. I mean, it was really uh, quite a romantic um, life. And so when we suddenly were thrust into this evangelical world, we were told that anybody who didn't accept Jesus into their heart uh, was going to go to hell. And so right away, I thought, well, that means my mother, my real mother is in hell. And that means my grandmother is going to hell and all of my Boston relatives. And so I told her, you know, very teary. I was truly worried for her soul. And she said, go get me the phone. <laughs> and she called my father. She had a very like thick New England accent. You know, she said tomato and parking and all that stuff. And she was the only one who ever called him Richard. Every, everybody else called him Dick. And I just remember her getting, calling his number, getting on the phone. Richard, what have you been telling my granddaughter? You know, and she really let him have it. But it didn't, it didn't settle the unease of my soul. You know, I thought, oh, God, I've tried to save her and she's rejected it. She's going to go to hell. <laughs> If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about a gripping new memoir about surviving childhood trauma and learning forgiveness. My guest is award-winning reporter Rachel Louise Snyder. Her new book is Women We Buried, Women We Burned. So your life at home became really violent. Your father beat you. You fought with your stepmother and you, you almost kicked her ass in a fight mm -hmm. you ran mm -hmm. away and then they threw you out how old were you how did you live yeah i was 16 um they kicked me out and they kicked all there were four of us who had come from the two previous marriages and they kicked all four of us out and we i was 16 my real brother was just about to turn 18 and my stepbrother was 17 my stepsister was 20 my sibling, my step siblings had a grandmother in the area, so they just went to her house. My brother went to the YMCA and lived, finished his last year of high school living at the YMCA. He he actually has a PhD now. He's amazing. Um, and uh, I lived out of a car essentially. I had everything I owned in the trunk of a car. I worked at a Mexican restaurant, um, which, as it turns out, it's not just you know you'll never starve if you're working at a restaurant and you're unhoused. But I think more than that, anyone who's ever worked at a restaurant knows that there's, um, it's a group of, of misfits, right? You're operating um, at night, essentially, you know, I would regularly work until midnight or two in the morning. Um, 
and you have this kind of built-in family. And so people really looked out for me when they found out. I had a um, manager named Dawn who let me sleep on her couch for a whole month. I had um, two other, a waiter named Hugh and a waitress named Beth, and they both really looked out for me. Um, I did, you know, there were nights I slept in my car. There were nights, there were a couple of nights I called my father and asked him to rent a motel room for me because I wasn't old enough and it was too cold. And, um, you know, I didn't, (laughs) it's only of course in that Kierkegaardian phrase of understanding life backwards that I thought, wait a minute, that was awful. But at the time it didn't feel awful. I felt like I'm finally out of that house of horrors. (laughs) Like the world felt safer to me than inside my own house. And um, so it didn't seem so bad. I know that sounds crazy, but compared to how I'd been living in the chaos and the violence and the anger and the rage, it seemed better to be out in the world with my suitcase and my car. For a long time, you blamed your ignorance about the world on having lost your mother. Had she been around, she would explain the mysteries of the world. What kinds of things were those? And and why couldn't you ask Barb, your your stepmother, to fill in and explain things? Yeah. You know, my mother, Gail, and my stepmother, Barb, could not have been more different. I mean, Gail grew up in the North Shore, you know, was educated, um, you know, had before she got sick, she'd worked at IBM. Um, and Barb came from Nebraska. Her family was um, sort of rural farm people, and she worked at a at a um, blue collar factory. And so they were just very different women. And um, I felt very much like all the mysteries around growing up as a girl would have been solved had my mother been around, right? Like I would have known what one put in a purse. I still to this day don't carry a purse, you know, <laughs> um, and, and Barb never carried a purse in her, in her defense. She wasn't a, a purse lady either. Um, I would have known how to walk in heels. I mean, my grandmother, I remember going to walk along, walking along the beach, the sidewalk with her and she'd be wearing a sweatsuit with heels, you know, like a track suit with heels. <laughs> um, you know, I putting on makeup being, I've always been sort of very loud and, um, probably talked more than most girls. And I feel like I would have been more womanly somehow if my mother had lived, I would have known how to talk to boys. I would have known, um, how, how I, I would have known how to get pregnant. I didn't know how to, you know, I was 26 before a boyfriend I had whose father was a gynecologist drew like a uterus and fallopian tubes and ovaries. I never knew what that looked like. I mean, 26 years old is pretty late to be learning that stuff. (laughs) And I just didn't ask Barb because I had no relationship with her. None. I did not talk to her unless she talked to me or there was some absolute unavoidable reason to talk to her. And then I left home at 16. So I only lived with her for five years or so. She just was not someone I I would have ever gone to. Your grandma, Irma, never gave up on you. And, and she had a scheme 
to send you to the Barbizon Modeling and Acting School. You didn't become a model, but it led to a career in booking heavy metal bands. Were you good at it? Oh, God. <laughs> you know, when I was recording the audio for this book, I was working with an engineer, and we he has done three books with me, and he said, this this memoir, like, every chapter is like a wild different left turn (laughs) that is one of the crazier ones i think my grandmother who was in my life but distant so i saw her once a year or maybe twice a year knew that that things were troubled but she didn't know how bad they were and then when i i was expelled from high school and three months after i was expelled i was kicked out of the house and she knew i wasn't living at home with my father but you know she didn't quite know what was going on. And so I think her plan for me was the only way I can save Rachel is to make her into somebody, (laughs) somebody who could become a wife someday and be saved by some lovely Jewish boy. Right. Like that was her whole plan. And so she found what she called the finishing school. But of course, to those of us who were teenagers in the mid to late eighties, Barbizon was this, advertisement in the back of 17 magazine that said be a model or just look like one and my grandmother was like i'll send you to finishing school and i'll pay for it and she told me you know barbizon was the place she had in mind and i i thought this was the most hilarious thing ever and i was like sure why not and so i went and i met this teacher tamara who was just the snow white beauty and she and i kind of hit it off she was 10 years older than me but we um we would like you know go to bars on the weekend in northern indiana where she lived and um yeah we were in a club one night called club dimensions and it was dead it fit about you know 400 people 500 people and she cracked a joke to the bartender about how dead it was and he said well you know we're always having trouble uh booking bands you know any bands And she said, well, I don't, but she does. And she pointed to me and I was like shocked because I was like, wait a minute, I do know a band. I went to high school with a drummer named Chris and I would sit and listen to his garage practices sometimes on the weekends. And so I just blathered my way through it. Like, yes, I do know a band. They're called White Lie, L-I-E, Lie. Yes, I can get you a promo pack. I had no idea what a promo pack was and whatever. And so I got home. And I called Chris on the phone and said, hey, what's a promo pack? Hey, do you want to play at this club in Indiana? And it turned out that I was a sort of a natural at sales and at talking. And I ended up booking them for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, something like that. Like a good long while. Your mother's side of the family came through again when your Uncle Robert offered to pay half your tuition for a semester at sea. Now, this is the kind of a trip that a college kid could easily use to blow off a year and party. But it made right. it made you see your life completely differently. Tell us how. Yeah, completely different. So when I was booking the band, they had a producer, a very well-known producer, Frank Papillardo, who is still a producer today and, you know, has produced Stevie Nicks' most recent album. And he taught me everything he knew about the business. And then one day he said to me, like, you have to go to college. And I was 19 by now. I had stabilized somewhat. I was old enough to sign a lease. And so I had a really crappy studio apartment. 
I said, I can't go to college. I never graduated high school. And he said, you know, just talk to someone. All they can do is say no, right? Like you're already, you're already not going to school. So the worst that will happen is you'll end up exactly where you are. And he made an appointment for me with the admissions director of a college called North Central College named Rick Spencer. And Rick, for whatever reason, accepted me on the spot, even though I had no high school diploma. But I, what I had was three years of living on my own, working low-wage jobs, living in absolute poverty, and I knew I had to change. And he, he gave me the chance of a lifetime, accepted me to college, and in my senior year, my uncle said, hey, there's this program, it's a study abroad program, except instead of going to you know Rome or Paris or something, you go on this ship and you travel around the world and you don't travel to places like London, you travel to places like Delhi, India, or, you know, um, Kenya. And it was called Semester at Sea. And I had never left home. I mean, I had barely left the Midwest at that point. And my first night in my first country after sailing for two weeks was in Japan. I mean, you cannot get more foreign than American Western culture and Japanese Eastern culture. And it it blew my mind. And there were a lot of kids who partied and who, you know, didn't understand the gift they were being given by seeing the world. But I was really serious at that point. I was about to graduate college. I knew I wanted to go to grad school. Um, and I, I just, I discovered the world in a very literal sense, a world that had really been hidden away from me by the evangelical culture that I grew up in. Hmm. I, I have to say that one of my favorite lines in the entire book is when you said, if people knew how easy it was to get a GED, no one would ever finish high school. I know. I, know. <laughs> I have no idea if that remains true today, but oh my gosh. Yeah. I was it, like, I mean, I studied and studied and studied and I thought, why in the heck did I spend so much time studying? I could have taken this in my sleep. <laughs> and I don't, let me just say, I don't think I'm a particularly smart or gifted person. I just, it was, it was a pretty low bar. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood. Today we're talking about surviving a brutal childhood and learning to move forward with forgiveness. My guest is award-winning reporter Rachel Louise Snyder. Her new book is Women We Buried, Women We Burned. Rachel, after a long period of traveling and writing about women all over the world, you moved to Cambodia, a place that suffered a horrible genocide, but also a place in which spirits are taken very seriously. Why do you write that Cambodia was the place where the darkness of your past receded? Oh, I forgot I wrote that line. <laughs> um, See, this is the, this is what happens with me. I read the book yesterday. You wrote it two years ago. You, I know more yes. than you do about it. <laughs> that's that's hundred percent true. Absolutely. I um, by that point I had been you know traveling and writing stories pretty pretty much for the better part of you know ten years, and. Um, I had been to Cambodia in 96 and it had really haunted me. I'd never been somewhere where I had been, I had been to places where they had this like, you know, awful past. I mean, you know, parts of India with the partition, for example, or, you know, I was there when Tibetan refugees came really stumbling in from a month walking over the Himalayas into Kathmandu, the refugee center there. Um, 
but Cambodia was a place that felt like you felt the portent of the future. And in, indeed, the, the year after I was there, less than a year after I was there, there was a, a civil unrest and a grenade was thrown in, in, in the middle of the city. And I think 17 people were killed. That was 1997. Um, and you could really feel that when I was there in, in late 96. And so when I moved, I moved there in 2003 to cover the war crimes tribunals, which were supposed to start uh, soon, although they wouldn't start until like 2008 or something. I never, I never did end up writing anything about them, but um, I learned that Cambodia was a place that really believed there was this world of, of ghosts and spirits that lived right alongside our, our human world. And it wasn't that the ghosts and spirits were something to fear. You know, in, in evangelicalism, we're taught that they control everything. In Cambodia, it was more like you had to pay homage to them. You had to acknowledge them. You had to care for them in a way. And there were bad spirits and those spirits could snarl you and, and cause traffic accidents and things like that. But in general, it was a way of living alongside what you didn't know or understand. And I just began to think about like my mother and, and maybe it wasn't entirely what I had lost, but in fact, what I could learn from that loss. And maybe I could learn a different way of gratitude and a different way of acceptance and, you know, to be around people who have survived the unimaginable, you know, not just that they survived a genocide, but that they are now living alongside the people who killed many of their family members. Um, you don't live through that experience. And I lived there for six years without changing your own perspective dramatically. And, and so that happened. It just changed me. Okay. So last question you and your stepmother, Barb, developed a very close relationship as she suffered from cancer. You cared for her as you might have cared for your own birth mother, it seemed to me. What mm -hmm. brought you close after all the years you'd been at odds, even though your views on God and politics and even your father, who she adored, were so distant? Yeah, I ask myself that question, too, still. Um I, when I was in Cambodia, I, I, I gave birth to my daughter, um, and I really, I really had this decision about, well, I had this awful upbringing, but that upbringing is not my daughter's. And if my parents, who are her grandparents, want to know her, she should have that opportunity. It shouldn't be my decision. The generational pain that I suffered through should not be... Uh, uh, born onto her. And so I made a very conscious decision to have her in their life and she loved them and they loved her, especially my dad um, had this like just sweet, sweet relationship with her. And so we had already kind of reestablished ties and I was flying out to Arizona where they lived. And then when my stepmother got, she got colorectal cancer, you know, it was a sort of history repeating itself. Um, but she told me uh, that she knew I would be there. And when they asked for my help, I did. I dropped everything and flew out there. 
And so somehow she knew before I knew that I, that I would be loyal and faithful to her in that way. And we really met, I think, for the first time in some ways as women. And she knew that she was both a stand-in for my real mother, but also herself. I mean, she knew that. She had a sense of that. And, you know, the thing is, when somebody is dying, there really is truly this artifice that falls away. And you talk about things that matter. Um, You really talk about the only things that matter, you know, love and faith and fear. And um, I will be, for the rest of my life, grateful to her for allowing me to care for her. Really, that was a gift to me. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. Today we've been talking to award-winning reporter Rachel Louise Snyder about her new memoir. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Women We Buried, Women We Burned is a riveting book, and it was recently published by Bloomsbury. This is Ira Wood with a lowdown on women's lives and the will to survive. One interview at a time. Bye for now. <laughs>